I'm not sure that the, uh, the wise men made it sound that pretty. But they certainly paved the way for us. And if you'd make your way there to Matthew chapter 2, we'll learn a little bit more. There's a, yet more for them to teach us when it comes to worship. The worship of the one true God. I might just quickly remind you, if you're just tuning in or just to get a glimpse of the forest, uh, we're doing a series on spiritual disciplines. We're learning how we might say yes to all that God's given us. And, and as a church and as a people, I, I do pray that we have grown in our love of God by way of discipline. Discipline in our lives to pray to Him because He's worthy. Discipline in our lives to read Scripture. The discipline of meditation. Um, discipline of evangelization. And uh, now we, we're coming and looking at really the most important discipline is a discipline of worship. Because that's really what all the other disciplines are expressing. They're expressing worship. So we've been thinking for a few weeks about worship, especially as it was Christmas time. We learned a lot from these worshipers from afar, from the east, from the orient that traveled. And, uh, these kind of unexpected worshipers uh, they were worshipers, uh, surely. We would expect them to be worshiping uh, pagan gods and worshiping stars. But here we find in Scripture some of the first worshipers to be ahead of the curve and know what God's doing are some Gentiles with a pagan background and likely from Zoroastrianistic background of worshiping uh, stars and worshiping um, the dead and consulting with the dead, magi, magicians... And yet here, uh, the stars were aligned just right, and they got it right. Uh, by the Spirit of God uh, and by the grace of God, these men are given revelation that there is one in Bethlehem, and He is worthy of our worship. And so they rejoice to go and worship Him. Uh, real quick review of some of the things we've learned up to this point is that anyone can worship. There is an absolute diversity in worship. I mean, if these guys can worship the one true God, then anybody can. If people with a pagan background like they have, well, people with a, a shady background like us, well, we can worship God. The worship of God is for anyone and it is for everyone. There's both an option and an obligation. It is available and it is expected. The worship of the one true God, our maker, and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We learned that worship is worship. Worship just isn't a religious idea. It's not a concept. It is literally us, our capacity to express worth to something, expressing that capacity and saying, this God is worthy. He is worth a lot. That is our worship. We are saying God is the worthy one. Worship is worship. We learned that the word worship is prokoskos. Uh, is, Proskinuo, and it means to kiss toward something. To kiss toward. It's very intimate. It's all-encompassing. Uh, the emotion, the intellect, and the will. All of us to all of God, you are worthy. May all of me be like, as a kiss to you. I'm declaring the worship of God. And that this is where this all ends. Revelation 4.11 says that the 24 elders fell down before the one seated on the throne to worship the one who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne and they said, 
O Lord, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and because of your will they exist and they were created. Worship is about declaring that God is worthy in our actions, our thoughts, our emotion, our intellect, and our will. We learn from these worshipers as they traveled, they were just full of joy. You know, they weren't just like, we have to worship. I mean, they were like, we get to worship. It says they, were ex- they rejoiced exceedingly with exceeding joy, something that affected, something f- fairly redundant like that, letting us know these guys are really happy about it. And then they go and find out where the king is and they rejoice again. And as they're going to discover about worship, we learned also that worship is something we're going to learn about that we are going to be students of worship. So (coughs) that brings us then to last week. And last week we looked at how worship is, one of the critical ingredients of worship could be surmised by saying, worship is about seeing Jesus. As we just sang together, behold our God. That's what we're doing. With the eyes of faith, we're saying, who is like our God? And we're stripping away all these other false idols, these false gods. So we found out that worship is is about me seeing Him. I need to see Him more clearly, more in detail, uh, more uh, specifically, that I might worship Him. To see Him is to worship Him. And then on the other end of that, that my biggest challenge is going to be not seeing Him or seeing others worthy of worship. And that's where you get fake worship and false worship. Fake worship is where I'm worshiping the right God, but I'm fake about it. Herod in this day, Herod says, I want to come worship Jesus too. Tell me when you find him. But did he really want to worship Jesus? No, he was a phony. He was a fake. He wanted to kill Jesus. And in our hearts, sometimes there's a rebellion against the Lord Jesus. But in our exterior, there is something that looks a lot like worship. And this apparently, according to Malachi, is very disgusting to God. Jesus Just one of the things that got Jesus in so much trouble is is he called them out, not for false worship. He called the Pharisees out for fake worship. He said, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And may God not find that to be true among us. But that there is a sincerity outwardly and internally that we believe in this God and we love this God and and he is worthy and he's awesome. And so worship, worship is about seeing Jesus. And I wrote this statement down. I just want to read it to you. When you look at Jesus and see what you want to see, you will be delusional and reject Him. But when you look at Jesus and see what God wants you to see, you will rejoice and worship. And I say that to you to say this. Keep looking. Maybe you're you're taking a look at Jesus and you're kind of like, man, I'm not getting it. I'm like, I get a little bit and I'm coming back. I'm coming back to church. I'm coming to services. I'm trying to read. But I just don't really, really think I get it. And I just want to say this to you. Keep looking. Keep, just keep looking. And maybe some of you, you've been, you've been looking at Jesus for 50 years. You've been believing in him and relating to him for 50, 60 years. I want to tell you something else to you too. Keep looking. Just keep looking. Hang in there. Keep looking. God wants to show you himself in greater and deeper capacities. And it is beautiful. And it is transforming. And it is life to your being. Just keep Just keep looking till you see what God wants you to see. And the natural man will always see, we always see our own delusion. We always see a puny Jesus. Through the the arrogant and fleshly and prideful eyes, 
we'll always see a Savior that can only halfway save us and we have to finish the job. But if we keep looking and we see what God wants us to see, we'll see an altogether complete salvation in Christ that is totally and finally humbling. And we, we, we mourn and we rejoice at the same time in those precious words, it is finished. And there at the cross, we behold our God and we worship God. Now, we want to grow and, and see what else we can learn from these fellows about worship. And that brings us to uh, chapter 2 and verse um, 11. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So not only did they rejoice, not only did they learn about worship, not only did, have they taught us that worship is about seeing Jesus, they, saw, they weren't distracted by some of the other sights, the star or the mother. They, they, worship is about seeing Jesus. You see a couple things here as they could continue to teach us a little bit about worship, and that is they presented gifts. They made a sacrifice. So I'd like to say to you that worship is about worship. Worship is about focusing and responding to God. Worship is about falling down before God, being in awe of Him, accepting our place before Him. Worship is about sacrifice. We're saying to God, God, you are worthy. So you can imagine these gentlemen. I, some say there are three. We really don't know how many there are. There could have been ten, but there were three gifts. And here they come, and they're making their plans, and I saw the star, and God's given them some sort of a revelation. That means a king, the king, we have to go Worship the king. And he said, well, you can't go empty-handed. You can't just go see the king. What are you going to bring? You see, it would never cross their mind to go empty-handed to a king like this. You wouldn't, you wouldn't go to any earthly king this way. Certainly not a king that had this kind of appearing, appearing, appearance by a star. This prophetic king that the Jews had prophesied would come and be the king of kings, the kingdom that ends all kingdoms. You don't go to him empty-handed. They wouldn't go to their own pagan king empty-handed. Now, surely they're not going to go to the king empty-handed. It never crossed their mind. We're not going to go empty-handed. We're going to present something worthy to him. We're going to give gifts to him. What will you give? Give gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so they, get, they bring gifts to this king. What is this king worthy of in your heart? What is he worthy of? What is he not worthy of? He owns anything you would give him, but what is he not worthy of? He's worthy of anything and everything that we could gather before him and give to him. All those elders had there in Revelation 4 was their crown, likely representative of the salvation that God had given them and the fruit that was born out of that salvation. And I believe that eternally and we perpetually get to throw that before the king of kings. Because there is no greater joy than not just to see the king, but then to be able to respond to the king. We've talked about that and C.S. Lewis has helped us out with that. But the, the, the joy is completed as we express something about it. I mean, could you imagine... You know, you just uh, you got this really lame wife, and she's like, "Okay, you can watch the Super Bowl and your favorite team's playing." And just lame old wife's like, "But you you can't you can't shout, you can't rejoice, you can't like yell." You know, it's it's you know the kids are asleep. It's just you need to sit there quietly. 
And none of your bros would come over and watch the game with you ever again. Can you imagine how miserable it would be as your team scores the final touchdown and you go, See, it's, that expression is complete with the yeah, with the rejoicing in what you love and what you're in awe of. If you can't rejoice in that, it's not a complete experience. And you know, it's not a complete experience for these gentlemen. We're not just going to the king. We're taking gifts to the king. We're going we're to bring something to him as a symbol of who he is. We're going to get involved in his worthiness. We're not just going to see his worthiness. We are going to respond to his worthiness. That is worship. Responding to his worthiness. How are we responding to his worthiness? It should cost something. It should hurt. He's worthy of a cost, a sacrifice. And throughout history, uh, this idea of sacrifice has been ingrained in people. Where did it come from? It came from God himself. In the very beginning, the first act of worship was there Cain and Abel. And God asked Cain and Abel likely to bring him an offering. And Abel brings a, a sacrifice of animal sacrifice in faith in God. And Cain brings a sacrifice likely of grain, an offering of from the fruit of the ground, the harvest, as he was a farmer. And it says God respects Abel's blood sacrifice, but he did not respect Cain's sacrifice. And he gives Cain an opportunity to get it right. And he does not get it right. Instead, he gets it even worse. And he kills his brother. But you see, God has been specific about worship. And you can imagine that was then passed down. It's passed down and Moses passes it down that God deserves sacrifice. In fact, so much of Scripture is about sacrifice. <coughs> the Old Testament mentions, the Bible mentions the word uh, sacrifice in some form or fashion uh, 240 times, I count. Who can sacrifice, what to sacrifice, how to sacrifice, what to say when you sacrifice, what to be thinking, what your state of heart when there is an offering being made. Rather large portions of the Bible are given to describe and prescribe the sacrifices to God. I wrote down a quote from uh, R.C. Sproul's book, Come Let Us Worship, or How Then Shall We Worship? He says, But today the need for sacrifice to be made in faith is forgotten. We hear that it does not matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. In fact, the basic requirement of sacrifice is unknown. It does not matter what your religious practices are. It does not matter what you worship. It only matters that you do worship. You hear that a lot. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you try. What matters is that you worship God. It doesn't matter how. And yet from the very beginning, you see God being specific about how he wants to be worshipped. He respects Abel's sacrifice. He does not respect Cain's sacrifice. Both of them bring sacrifice. God says, this is the way I want it to be done. And then he begins to get very specific again and again throughout the Old Testament. He says, my, my, this God is very specific about how he wants to be worshipped in the offerings and in the sacrifices. So what in your life is not worthy of sacrificing to Christ? What has a higher worth or value or priority than Christ himself? And there, my friends, as theological as you may be, you have found your God. 
however small it might be, however ugly the truth might be, however you might answer that question, there is your God. There's your idol, I should say. The sacrifice offered in faith in Christ. So in order to understand what, that, what we really have to understand, in order to understand how, what we should sacrifice for Christ, what we should sacrifice for this God, we have to understand the sacrifice that he has made for us. It never makes sense. Every religion might call you to make some sort of sacrifice in God, for God. But only here, in the one true God, do you find the sacrifice that God made for you. And there is no sacrifice you can make that makes sense unless it is a response to that sacrifice. So hear me out. If you leave right now and you go out and say, I'm going to sacrifice this and that for God. And you do not understand this part, that all the sacrifices I make for God must be a response for the sacrifice that God made for me. You are religious, you are good looking, but you are in sin. And you are, and, 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 as, and Jesus would say it this way, in vain do they worship me. You can go be very religious and very devout and, very, and look very committed and Christ say, vanity, your life, your whole life is vanity. You remember Jesus was more impressed with this little old lady who has one mite, it's like one penny, she has one penny to give into the offering plate. The other fellow had the equivalent of 10,000 and he puts it in the offering plate. He makes a big, big financial sacrifice for God. But his heart was not right and he was doing it for the wrong reasons. And Christ applauds this little old lady. She comes up and she throws in her one penny. Ding! <laughs> there, everyone must have thought, whoa, who is this nobody? And yet they're Christ. They're in his heart, Christ. Oh, oh, now you see that? That's what I love. That's the kind of worship I love. She was worshiping in spirit and in truth. And there is no worship that's in spirit and truth that is not a response to the one true God. We are responders to God. We are not initiators with God. So the key to that, I think, can be found in the gifts themselves. So let's take a closer look at the gifts that these gentlemen chose to give. I'm not sure how, how aware they were of their gifts and what their gifts might be pointing to. But throughout the ages, scholars and, and preachers have pointed at these gifts as examples of particular attributes of what this God would do. They're not just random gifts. They are gifts with a meaning behind them. He's given gold. Gold is a kingly thing. Throughout the Old Testament, God says when you're going to build a temple, you're going to have to collect, they're going to have to collect gold. They're going to melt a lot of gold and, and build this temple. The altar will be coated in gold. and Kings deserve gold. Gold is a symbol of kingliness. It shows timeless value. Often when they were making idols, people would make idols out of gold. We're told in heaven that gold's no more than pavement, just to, as to say that this, this is a royal and kingly and majestic place. Gave him gold. Why? Because he's the king. How do we give an offering to God? We give it to him because he's the king. It says they also gave frankincense. It's this white, pure uh, sap that would come out of a Boswelli tree. And it would grow on the limestones of the rocks of South Arabia. And they would tap these trees and get this frankincense. As mill offerings were offered to God, they would burn this very same frankincense to God. Frankincense reminds us of praise to God. 
think of frankincense, you think of something that's priestly. It's often talked about as incense burning to God. In Revelation 5, you also see incense burning to God there. In Malachi, God's saying, he's, he has his, gives out his grand vision of Gentiles and people all over the world. And what are they doing? They're burning incense to God. Incense is a symbol of praise to God. So whether they knew it or whether they didn't, it's often been thought that this gift is no accident, but that this gift is because this, is, this little baby in the cradle is worthy of praise as king and as God. And then the most unusual, myrrh. For the rest, as has already been indicated, it was perfume used by and in the incense of mortal man to make his life more pleasant, his pain less dreadful, and his burial less repulsive. Hendrickson says in the exposition of the gospel according to Matthew, myrrh was given to make death more pleasant. It was given to make life more pleasant. Myrrh makes one think of the, the pains and the suffering of life. And surely this Savior would go on Isaiah 50, and suffer. Isaiah 53 says this, He was despised and rejected of men. This little baby wouldn't grow up to be liked by everyone. He had a life of suffering ahead of him. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs. He hath carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. You see, he's humble. He's going to suffer. But bear in mind, he has gold there at the cradle as well. He is God. He is God, but there's myrrh there. He's going to suffer. He's going to suffer. And that's the offering I'm talking about here. That's the offering that all little offerings must be a response to this offering. All little offerings that are of any spiritual value must be a response to this offering. Ask yourself this, this morning, is my presence my sacrifice? What a sacrifice it is uh, to come here this morning and to endure this little fellow's talk. Uh, is this sacrifice I'm making right now, is this directly in my heart a response to what he has done? Am I here this morning because Christ died for me? Or am I here because I'm supposed to be? I'm here because she will expect me to be here. I'm here because it makes me feel better about me. Or is your presence here because of what he did for you? Now, this is in no way to shun anyone out the door, but it is just a very practical experiment we can do in our own heart and ask ourselves, is our worship really worship? Is our offering really a response to the offering that he gave? The secret of Cain's and Abel is found in Hebrews 11 in what we call the Hall of Faith. Where it talks about all these different great men of God and how they did what they did because of faith. And there were given the... the, uh, the 
uh, answer to why, why, why is it God? Why are you like being hard on Cain? And then you, you love Abel's offering, but you don't have any respect for Cain's offering. Why is that? And there in Hebrews 11, you have to wait till you get to Hebrews to find the, God's explanation. And he says, in faith, in faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice. You see, Abel's sacrifice wasn't, God, look at my sacrifice. Abel's sacrifice was, God, I, I am nothing. You are everything. My sacrifice is in faith and in trust in you. Now today, it's all the more easier to put your faith and trust in this God. Because he has so expressed himself, not just in word, not just in tradition, not just in spoken word through generation to generation. This God has embodied human flesh and he has come and he has shown you himself. And he has shown you his offering for you. And he has earned your trust. He, has, he is worthy of your trust, I assure you. There is no thing out there worthy of your trust you are, you are rolling the dice in the most foolish and guaranteed way to fail when you trust in any other pseudo-savior. But when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a guaranteed certain savior. I mean, uh, he couldn't do anything more to earn your trust. He has proven his love in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. No question. And the old song said it like this about those gifts. Born a king of Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again. King forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. Frankincense to offer have I, incense owns deity nigh. Prayer and praising, all men raising, worship him, God on high. Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume, breaths of life, of gathering gloom. Sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. And then the last verse says, Glorious now, behold him arise, King and God and sacrifice. Hallelujah, hallelujah, sound through the earth and the skies. He is the sacrifice, not us. Even so, should our gifts be a response to the one who has offered everything for us? So back to the offer, back to the question. What should we offer this God? And here I ask you to turn to Romans 12. You've memorized it, but you're turning there anyway. Romans chapter 12. You're moving forward in the Bible through the Gospels, past the book of Acts, and then into Romans chapter 12. And as you're flipping through those chapters, you're going past chapter 1 through 11 to get to 12. In chapter... Chapters 1 through 3, and you, you see so much about why we need mercy, why we need a sacrifice, why we need grace. You, you pass by that on your way to 12, and you saw that there, there is none righteous, no, not one. That the most righteous of us are uh, despised before God's holiness. It's as if we have uh, poison in our mouth when God looks at us, our bitterness in our heart. You see, in chapter 3, the solution is Christ himself. God would send a sacrifice. You see that there's this mercy that, chapter 6, 1 through 23, mercy that's going to give you freedom. Freedom from condemnation and freedom from the law and freedom from sin. You see in chapter 7, freedom from the law. The law is no longer going to stand over you. 
and accuse you and condemn you, but rather God fulfills the law for you. That's what Christ has done. He's telling you about that in chapter 7. In chapter 8, you flip by that there as well, it says you have freedom from death. It takes about 39 verses and, and, and just pounds that out, how we are free. Death has no grip on us. We see in chapters 9 uh, that, that this, freedom, this free sacrifice is electing. It's something He chose us for from before the foundation of the world. You see that you didn't do anything to earn or deserve this salvation. And you see in chapters 11, the great praise for God and His grand plan. Then you come to chapter 12. And He says the word therefore, because He has said a whole lot before that. He says, I beseech you, which means I'm begging you. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In light of the offering that God has made, we ask the question, what kind of offering should we bring? Just as the Magi must have asked themselves before they left, what sort of gift should we bring? We gather today around this same King in Christ and we say, what sort of offering, what sort of sacrifice is fit for a king like this? And I said before we can even answer a question like that, we have to know what kind of king this is and what kind of offering he has made for you. And then we discovered afresh that this king has made the offering of his very own self. And Paul hammers all that out for 11 chapters. And then he says, I'm begging you, therefore, based on the mercy of God, not based on the law of God. He's not even appealing to his own apostolic authority. He's saying, I beg you. It's not, hey, you must do this because Paul said so. Paul, Paul is on his hands and knees. This is a, I'm begging, I'm pleading with you. Based on the mercy of God, church, I'm pleading with you. I'm begging you. Based on the cross of Christ, the great offering, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, God's own blood on Calvary shed because that's exactly what it would cost to make a sinner like you a saint worthy of heaven. Based on that mercy, that undeserved favor of God, that mercy, offer what? Present your bodies a living sacrifice. You know, it's not by accident. The same Greek noun, cheros, which means grace, is the same word that's also used for gratitude. Grace, gratitude. They ought to be like that. Sisters, you know. God gives you grace. There ought to be gratitude. Cheros. God gives grace. He ought to receive gratitude. The Romans and the Jews are like would have been who would have been reading this letter at the time would be familiar with sacrifices. The Jews, of course, as we just learned about, and the Greeks they would offer many sacrifices, false sacrifices, uh, false gods. And here he's saying, "I want you to present your bodies as a sacrifice that's living." See, we've already been told in Corinthians that uh, that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're told in Thessalonians to possess our body in sanctification. Think about that. You are responsible for your body. 
You know, sometimes when temptation is really great and you, you, you give yourself this excuse, man, it's just too great, you know. I just can't help myself. The urge is too great. Temptation is just too great. I, I always respond this way. I have to respond this way. I have to give in to temptation. Paul says in Thess- to the Thessalonian church, possess your body, own your body, take control of your body. Sounds a lot like discipline, doesn't it? You take control based on the mercy and grace of God. You take control of your body. You are responsible for your words. You're responsible for where your feet take you. You're responsible for the things you let come into your mind. You're responsible for where your eyes go. Those are your eyes. You take possession of your vessel, Paul says. God is merciful. God's so merciful we can trust him with our body. God is so good and so merciful you can lay down your life for him. I often hear people say, you know, I love God. I feel this great thing for God. And, but they, they don't live for God. And this whole idea of being a living sacrifice, I'm, I'm not just laying down my emotions where I'd say, I feel something for God. I'm laying down me, my intellect, my emotion, and my will. I am a living sacrifice. I'm a living, breathing sacrifice. I'm living because that means I'm going to sacrifice today and tomorrow and the next day. And, and at 12 o'clock, and at 1 o'clock, and at 3 o'clock, and I'm gonna just, every hour is a sacrifice to you, God. I don't have any hours of my own. They're all living sacrifices to the one who laid down his life for me. Don't forget that last part. Oswald Chambers said this on, for the June 13th uh, devotional. He says, we have the idea that we can dedicate our gifts to God. However, you cannot dedicate what is not yours. There's actually only one thing you can dedicate to God. And that is the right to yourself. If you will give God your right to yourself, He will make a holy experiment out of you. And His experiments always succeed. The one true mark of a saint of God is the inner creativity that flows from being totally surrendered to Christ. What is worship then? He says, by the way, this is reasonable. This is this this is rational. I was talking to a fellow in the street the other day. He's talking about you Christians have blind faith. Blind faith. It's not a rationed faith. It's, a, it's not a reasonable faith. It's a blind faith. And that's quaint and great for you. But our faith isn't quite that mystical. It's very reasonable. And our worship of God is very reasonable. It is a reasonable. In fact, it is what Paul would be saying on the reverse is your worship of anything else is unreasonable. Presenting half of yourself to God as a living sacrifice is not reasonable. God gave you all of himself. And that's God. And so at the very least we would do is give God all of ourself. Because what are you going to do with the other 50% anyway? You're going to ruin it. You, you, You ruin your life. God fixes your life. It would make sense that the merciful God would earn our trust, that we would lay down our life as a living sacrifice, if nothing else, because the only other option is for me to wreck my life. The only safe place for this guy to be is on an altar where God is in control. (laughs) Worship is a lifestyle. It means worship's not a song, worship's not a service. It means giving your life is reasonable. We're not reasonable, you know. I'm not a reasonable person. I couldn't pour water out of a boot if the instructions were on the hill. I'm the kind of person who, who puts a Made in America bumper sticker on my Toyota. And then I sell the whole thing for gas money. We're not smart. We're not reasonable. 
We're not as creative and clever as we think. We have degrees behind our name. We have education. We watch the Discovery Channel. We found a few people in life that we're smarter than. And we really think we're clever. This is what is reasonable. The one who presents his whole body, his whole life, his whole being as an offering to God. That is the beginning of wisdom. That is reasonable. I want to end by sharing a story with you. Several stories I could share. David Livingston, great missionary, gives his whole life and people ask him, why, why did you do this? How could you do this? He tells them he gave nothing. He gave, them, he gave God no sacrifice. People talk of sacrifice that I've made spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back as a small part of the great debt owing to our God which we could never repay? Is that sacrifice which brings to its own reward of health, healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and bright hope of glorious destiny hereafter? Away with such a word. It is emphatically no sacrifice. It is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then with foregoing of common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and sink. But, let, but, that, but only for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in us, for us. I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not to talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. Here's David Livingstone. I, I gave no sacrifice. But that wasn't the story I wanted to share with you. The story I want to share with you is about a Ugandan girl, Muslim, in, named Susan. And by God's grace, a missionary was able to reach this part of Uganda and even come to the school and share the gospel. You can do that in other countries, you know, strange as it might be. And she had never heard about Jesus Christ. But here in this service, this school, she hears of Christ. And there that hour, Susan gives her life to Jesus Christ. And her dad found out when she came home. Her dad is a Muslim family, from a Muslim family, immediately began to try to convert her back and, uh, and, and forbid her from going to worship. And she began going to church on Sunday. He forbid her from that. He tells her that she must deny Christ. He, finally, he grabs her by the neck, he pulls her into her room, he lays down a mat beside her bed, he says, sit on the mat. He says, sit on that mat until you're ready to deny Jesus Christ. He closes the door. And a week goes by. Another week goes by. Her brother keeps her alive by digging a hole under the door and pouring water in that door. She can lean over and lap up water and occasionally slipping a fried banana under the door. Another week goes by until eventually three months have gone by and the neighbors begin asking about Susan and the brother tells her exactly what's going on. And they call the authorities and the authorities come in there. And bless her heart, Susan's little legs have grown and her bones have misshapen because she's been sitting there so long. And she was 
under 50 pounds. And they asked her, as she sat still on that mat, why didn't you leave the mat? Why didn't you call for help? Why didn't you, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you try to escape? And she said, my dad told me to leave this mat would be to deny Jesus Christ. And how could I do that? He died for me. The worst thing that would happen to me is that I would go to be with him. Little girl has a lesson to teach us about what this body's worth. And it's not worth more than him who gave his life for us. It's reasonable. It's reasonable to worship God by giving him everything. It's reasonable. It's not unreasonable. It's reasonable. Father, help us. You come and you reason with us and you, you invite us to reason with you, Lord. And surely you have this morning. You are the king of all kings. You are worthy that we might be a living sacrifice for you. That in no way, shape, or form would we leave the mat, would we deny you. How could we deny him who gave everything for us? In Christ's name, amen.